I think will be helpful for us to understand why this is such a neat uh, ministry and why it is needed and why it is helpful. And so also, just so you know, um, in case you did not know, Sam Flory is now also our admin assistant. So when you call, she is the voice that you hear. And so she's the one who makes everything look good here in the church. And so now she's going to just share a little bit about backpacks and how we can help with that. Hello. Hello? Okay, there we go. All right, so, um, hello. Uh, I work for North North Thurston Public Schools, and I don't have a classroom, so I'm kind of a unique employee where I get to travel around to all of the 23 schools within the North Thurston School District. So we cover um, everything in Lacey and then one school that falls into um, Olympia. Of the local districts, um, North Thurston is the largest. We have uh, 14,935 children, and that was of not this past school year, but the one prior to that. So our numbers this year are substantially higher. We added another middle school. We're adding another elementary school. Lots of kids are coming. Um, but of those almost 15,000 kids, almost 42, uh, 43% of them at least for uh, the 2015-2016 school year, uh, fell under the low-income poverty line. And that's, I didn't realize when I moved here and I started working with kids um, how many of them don't have their basic needs met. And by basic needs, I mean like food, water, clothing, um, a backpack for school. Um, I started working here in private school and we only had kids... um, we had, we had very fortunate children who came through our doors. We didn't accept state assistance. Um, we took some military assistance, but nobody... I never went home at night and worried that my kids had food or clothes or weren't going to come to school tomorrow because something had happened and now they don't have a place to live. Um, and then in working for the school district, um, what my job is, is I work with children who are autistic or have extreme behavioral problems. And usually, if they're autistic, they also have extreme behavioral problems or they wouldn't need me. Um, and I work one-on-one with students. Um, schools request me or one of my five coworkers, and we go out and we, and we help these kids to succeed. Um, but what I noticed was all of, all of my kids are below that poverty line. All of my kids get Thursday bags of food that go home, and I started to notice that an awful lot of these kids get those Thursday bags of food. Um, and we don't think about that when we think about poverty. We, don't, we think about the adults that are homeless. Um, we think about adults who have you know, maybe not taken care of their priorities or have fallen on hard times, but we don't think about what this looks like for the child. Um, and it, is, it was astounding to me to see one student after another that just didn't have things that kids should have. Um, and something as simple as a backpack. And this program, I can't say enough like how something like a backpack can change a child's life. So these kids come to school and they don't have their basic needs and then other kids wonder like what's wrong with them and they know that they're different and they know that um, they know that there is something like wrong with them that makes them not the same as all other children and they have behaviors and they have problems and we can we can head that off by giving them a backpack for school it's so much more than a backpack it's more than feeling like they're you know they're fitting in or that they're ready for the day which is huge and important to make these kids successful I cannot stress that enough 
But this program, when they go to get that backpack, um, they go, I don't know if anybody has ever been to the City Gates backpack giveaway. I went last year for my first time after I heard about this. Um, and it's a big open lot and they fill it with things so much more than backpacks. It's a haircut. It's a dentist. It's, um, oh my gosh, it's clothes, it's resources, and it's also Jesus. There are There is a band playing, there's Christian music, and as these kids get in line to go get their backpack, there are people that pray with them. And it's not just like praying with, the, you know, silently over a line full of children. It's going up to those families and asking them, what are your needs? What can we pray for? How can we help you? And to see these people like, somebody actually cares. Someone cares that my kid is struggling and somebody cares that, you know, these kids, they need things. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Sorry, this one like, this one is really close to home for me. These kids feel so lost and some of them some of them without homes, without families, and they don't feel like they have anywhere to belong. But if they can go to the City Gates program and get their backpack and find out that there's a God that loves them and that there are people that actually care about them and want to help them to succeed, to see the looks on their faces, it turns kids' lives around. And if we can do something so little as like, putting a backpack together and knowing like even if you can't go volunteer or even if you can't do anything more maybe it's just a couple school supplies but knowing that that is part of something so much bigger so much bigger in reaching people that these little people they don't get reached it's so important so if you all would prayerfully consider filling out a or filling uh one of our backpacks i would so appreciate it so that we can reach just one more kid yeah and let's Um, let's pray. Let's just pray for that right now. And also, uh, just so you know, like one of the families here, I think they did like five backpacks last year. And I think they said as they did five backpacks, uh, I mean, the cost for each backpack was around like 10, 12 bucks, I think is what it was. If you do one backpack, it's a little bit more. But again, as you buy more supplies, it's, it's not much to, to fill a backpack. And, uh, and so we'll also, um, I, I think the date, uh, Andrew, is the date in the bulletin for the actual... Um, oh wait, you, <laughs> I'm talking to you. I think the date is in the bulletin for the day that we actually uh, go down there and hand out the backpacks. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not able to fill a backpack, uh, at least prioritize that. I think it's going to be a Thursday night. Uh, what's that? August 10th, and it'll be meeting down downtown. We'll get you more of the information. If you can't fill a backpack, at least come there. Where we do just get to pray with the families. If you're able to do both, great, and we'll get more of that information to you. Uh, but let's just pray as we begin the service, and then also um, just for this ministry that Sam has so passionately shared about. Father, we thank you uh, for the City Gates Ministries. For just it's a ministry that comes along the city and tries to pour, tries to connect Christians with the needs that we might show and share the love of Jesus. Lord, I just pray that we as a church would be able to help meet this need. And God, um, you have blessed us in so many ways. You've blessed us financially. And Lord, just help us to be able to meet these needs. We have 50 backpacks. May we fill all 50. May we fill more than 50. Um, And Lord, help us to love the children. 
Help us just to love these children, that they would see your love. And may we know that as we love them, as we fill these backpacks, what we're doing is we're showing them your grace, your love, your compassion, your tenderness. And so, God, may we be reminded of that. And, Lord, we thank you. Um, Bless August 10th. Bless that day as the churches just around Thurston County come together. Be with us also now as we dig into your word and uh, bless the reading and preaching of your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. If you are uh, going down to junior church, I go ahead and encourage you to line up and the teachers will help lead you down that way. If you are not going to junior church, then I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We'll be, actually we're going to start in chapter 5, 26, but then we'll be in chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. you've been with us, uh, we've been in Galatians for quite some time now. We are um, almost finished. Uh, There are two sermons left in Galatians uh, next week, and then the 30th we will uh, have completed preaching through this book, and that's what we do here. Uh, We preach through the books of the Bible that we would understand God's word in the context that he has given it to us. So I want to begin today by just asking a question. If you were to describe the Christian life, how would you describe it? What, what would your answer be? How specific could you be, or would it be kind of one of those where we love people? Well, that's great. How do we love people? Like, how specific would we be? What scripture would you use to validate your answer? Well, in chapter 6, this is what Paul is trying to answer. He wants us to understand what the Christian life looks like. And so let me just recap a little bit of chapter 5 to how we got here. In chapter 5, Paul begins kind of the application part of his letter. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, he's laid out the theology. We're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. And then in chapter 5, he's like, okay, I want you to know what this looks like lived out. And he begins by saying, we as Christians are to love one another, and we love others as we love ourselves. And then last week, we looked at, okay, so how do we do that? Well, we love others by walking by the Spirit. Every Christian has given the Spirit of God that the Spirit would lead us and empower us to love other people. Now in chapter 6, he wants to get to more than nuts and bolts, the gritty details, and say, okay, this is what that looks like. And so what we're going to have today is a description of the Christian life. And so let me clarify one more thing as we begin. We're going to talk about what it is to walk by the Spirit, to have life in the Spirit, to to have spirit life. But that's the same thing as when Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is called, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, when he's preaching what it looks like to be a member of God's kingdom. When we believe in Jesus Christ, not only do we receive his Spirit, but we also become a member of God's kingdom. And so this part of the letter, he's saying, okay, this is what it looks like to live by the Spirit. This is what it looks like to be a member of God's kingdom. This is what it looks like. My other title that I was wrestling with is The Normal Christian Life. This is a description of every Christian, um, and that's what Paul wants us to understand. So if you don't mind, we're going to stand as we read. We're going to start with the last verse in chapter 5, verse 26, and then we'll read the first five verses in chapter 6. And we stand at the reading of God's word because we believe God's word is inspired and comes from the very authority of God. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught 
in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let me pray. Father, as we dig into this today, God, give us the faith to understand. May your spirit be with us. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. And Lord, I pray that as we talk about how your spirit moves in us, that we would feel your spirit moving in us, moving us towards loving others in the way that we see here today in your scripture. God, we thank you that, Lord, not only do you tell us who you are and what you have done for us, but you also tell us what it looks like to live as your children, live as members of God's kingdom, to live as those with your spirit. So, God, help us to understand today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, real quick, uh, what we try to do is just give you the quick structure of the passage, and then we jump into the sermon um, we start with a warning. That's verse 26 in, in Matthew, or in Matthew, in Galatians 5. Uh, then Paul gives us an example of love, restore one another. He gives us the principle, we bear one another. And then he goes back to this warning again. So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to begin with the example, and we'll kind of put all the warning passages together uh, towards the end. But here's the main point. As Christians... We are God's instruments to help one another become like Jesus. That's the main point. That's what I want us to see today. As a Christian, you and I, filled with the Spirit of God, are used by God to help one another grow and become more like Jesus. And so in verse 1, Paul wants to give us an example. What does this look like? How do we help each other in the faith? And the example is we restore those who are caught in transgressions. So basically it begins, something has happened. Someone has been caught in a transgression. Now, transgression is another one of those words for sin. Transgression, iniquity, sin, all those words, slightly different meanings, but all meaning sin. Transgression is a word that means we have crossed a boundary. We're acting in a way that's not in accord <clears throat> with our faith. And the word caught conveys suddenness. suddenness. So perhaps someone has been caught lying, uh, been financially dishonest, Perhaps someone has come to light that they are addicted to pornography, they've been cheating on a spouse. Something has happened, something has suddenly come about where this sin has come to light. Who responds? That's the question. Who responds? And Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. So who is Paul referring to? Who is this spiritual people? I've, had, I've heard pastors say, this is the elders of the church, <clears throat> this is... This is just a certain group of people, but that doesn't seem to be what Paul is talking about. In fact, he doesn't talk about elders at all. And if we read the Bible, or if we read Galatians, we see back in chapter 3, verse 2, when we are saved by faith, all believers receive the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 6, we saw that when we are justified by faith and we're adopted into God's family, we're given His Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, everyone who has believed in Jesus Christ has been given his spirit that we would walk by the spirit. So who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to you, talking to me, talking just to the normal Christians. He's not talking about elders or deacons necessarily, although they are certainly included. He's not talking about some 
secret escalon of, of people within the church that, oh man, they're just kind of sit above us. Not mentioned at all. He's simply referring to the normal Christians, to you and to me. And so what do we do? He says, we restore them. You who are spiritual should restore him. The word restore refers to what a doctor would do to someone who has a broken bone. We, we straighten it out. Or what the disciples would do when they went fishing, they come back in, they mend their nets, they, they fix them and put them back together. So what does that mean? It means we, we confront someone and we lead them to repentance. We're to help the person, we're to help remind the person of the love and the joy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we help them see how, how whatever this sin is, it's trying to rob them of that. It wants to rob them of the joy and the grace that God has given them. And so we're seeking to restore them, to remind them of the infinite grace and love that God has for them. We're seeking to restore people for their joy. See, anytime we sin... Sin tries to promise a joy, but it never delivers. And so it attempts, robs us of real joy. And so when we restore someone who has fallen into this sin, we're saying, no, we want you to experience the real joy of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we do when we restore people. And so how do we do this? Well, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We don't condemn the person, but we come to them in love. We don't speak down to them as if we would never have done what they have done, saying, oh, man, you're such a terrible sinner. If you were more like me, we don't, we don't come at them like that. But we gently love them and lead them to repentance that they would experience the joy of Christ. Now, if you remember, if you were here last week, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit. And in verse 23, as Paul is giving the fruit of the Spirit, there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I mean, gentleness is right in there. I might have got those a little out of order. And we saw that the fruit of the Spirit, in essence, is really a sketch of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Jesus. And now the Spirit is given to us that we would live like Jesus, that we produce the fruit of Jesus Christ, that we would live and look like Him. And so when we restore someone, we're to come to them as Jesus comes to us and loves us and is gentle with us. And now His Spirit is in us that we would love others with gentleness and gently bring them back to understanding the grace of God. So this is similar to what we read at the end of the book of James. In James chapter 5, verse 19, this is what James writes. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There, James is saying, if one of the people falls into sin, we go after them. And when we do, we save them, in a sense, possibly from death, and then also from a multitude of other sins. Hear this. You are the instrument God uses to help those around them. You are. Amen. Like, this is who you are. As a believer, you are the instrument in God's hand that he uses in the lives of others that they would come to know Jesus. It's you. You are that person. If you believed in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God that you would come alongside one another, other Christians, encourage and restore when needed. This is you. This is me. This is who we are. This is the church. And Paul has already demonstrated this, hasn't he? If you've been with us, chapter 2. 
If you remember, Peter has come. He's no longer eating with the, with the Gentiles. He separated himself. And so Paul says he's no longer acting and his conduct is no longer in accord with the gospel. So he corrects him, rebukes him, that he would repent and come back in line with the gospel. So Paul is showing this is what we do. Jesus did this with Peter, remember? Jesus denies him. Peter then, at the end of, chapter, at the, end of the book of John, restores Peter brings him back to repentance. Jesus has done this. Paul has done this. We now, with the Spirit of Christ, we do this also. Now, at the end of verse 1, there's a little warning, and we'll just touch on it here. Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's a danger when helping people. And you've, you've probably experienced this. When we become focused on helping others, there's a tendency to neglect looking at ourselves. And we begin forsaking the fact that we too are sinners who daily need to repent and daily need God's grace. And so Paul's just kind of throwing up a little caution here. In fact, in this whole part of the letter where Paul is saying, this is how we live as Christians, this is how we show God's love, he keeps giving little red caution flags like, be careful, the flesh is there, the flesh is there, the flesh wants to come. And so we'll look at that a little bit more later. So this is the example Paul gives us. We restore those who fall into sin. But there's a principle that underlies this, and this is what we see in verse 2. And the principle is, we bear one another burdens out of love for one another. And so let's first begin, what's a burden? A burden is, is something heavy. Not too hard. Burden's heavy. So what can it be? It can be a sin like we just read in verse 1. It could possibly be some type of transgression. But it can also be a season in life, whether it deals with parenting whether it deals with marriage, whether it deals with finances, whether it deals with an illness. It can deal with some form of suffering. A burden could also be with dealing with a difficult person in our life. The burden can be many, many different things in our Christian life. And so we are called to go bear them with them. We are to come alongside them and help them carry. And so when we do this, when we come alongside someone who has a burden and we begin to carry also we also are sharing in that burden. Do you see that? And so a point, he's carrying a burden. You're saying, that's too heavy for you. You now come and pick it up also or hold it up or whatever that looks like. Now, why do we do this? Well, Paul says, as we look on, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. That's a command. And then he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Well, it's what Paul's been talking about all in chapter 5. If you go back to chapter 5, 14, one page to the left, this is what you read. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law is a law of Christ that we love others as Christ has loved us. We love others now as we love ourselves. When we bear one another's burdens, we are showing true Christ-like love. Now remember, Before we are saved, we operate under a legalistic mindset. That's what Paul has been talking about throughout the whole letter. We see people as a means of making much of ourselves. In legalism, we don't actually love other people. We love ourselves. We use other people to love us and make much of us. That's legalism. We're we're always working at how do we make much of ourselves? How do we prove ourselves? And therefore, when we do this, we won't want to enter into the messiness of someone else's life. In fact, we try to avoid them often as a means of separating ourselves, distancing ourselves, showing our holiness, or at least how we think, 
showing how much greater we are. And so Paul's now saying, this is how you've lived. This is how you live. You used to use relationships to make much of yourself, but now, because of the gospel, you've been set free from that type of life. Now you're able to love people and truly love them the way Christ loves them. You're able to love them not only for your joy, but ultimately for their joy in Jesus Christ. Now we can love, love others as we actually love ourselves, as Christ has loved us. And it's this kind of love that distinguishes us as Christians. Now think about it. If the whole earth is filled with people who primarily do things to love themselves, and all of a sudden... Now we have a people who truly love others. That's going to stand out. And that's why Jesus says in John 13, 35, he just washes the disciples' feet. At the end of that, he then says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's our love that distinguishes us as Christians. So Paul's made that point in chapter 5. He's saying, we love one another as we love ourselves. How do we do that? We walk by the Spirit. What does it look like? We bear one another's burdens we come alongside one another so let me give you just a few implications of what this means number one as christians we get our hands dirty we are not spectators so when we see someone falling into sin we don't operate by the to each his own principle or the not my business principle you hear that you've done that i've done that we hear that in the world jesus left heaven out of love left all the comforts of heaven, leaves his heavenly throne where angels have been created to just simply worship him and cry out, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. So Jesus leaves the throne and he comes into the world that he has made as a child and grows in, grows up as a man. He enters into the muck and mire of the world that he would then not only share our burden, but he takes our burden, he takes our sin. That we, that we are burdened with, that we, that we have all committed, and he takes it and goes to the cross that he would pay the penalty for it so that we could be free. This is, this is the gospel. And so now, because of what Jesus has done, coming into, entering into the muck and mire of this world, that he would save us and redeem us, so now his spirit is in us, that we would come and take the burdens of others and help them also, showing them jesus christ so when you see a fellow christian struggling um you don't guess what you don't need to pray if you need to help them you need to pray that you would help them well see christians we always ask the question i mean if only i knew god's will god's will is for us to come alongside one another bear one another's burdens i see a burden i don't have to say well and i hope someone does something about that i'll pray for you about that i'll pray someone else comes i don't have to pray what god's will god you want me to help you not no his will is that we help. We see that clearly in the text. Now it's, how do I help? What's the best way do I do that? And I pray, God, help me to do it in gentleness that the person would see Jesus and not me. Listen, when, when we do this, when we begin getting our hands dirty, this is where life gets messy. Life gets hectic. Our schedules will change because we're sharing the pain and struggles of others so that their pains and struggles become ours as well. And we need to prepare ourselves for that because there's been many people I've known where they begin helping and all of a sudden they're sensing the people's pains and burdens around them and then they run. They say, well, hold on, something's wrong here because somehow this is getting hard and that's not what this is supposed to look like. But it is what it looks like. 
It's the Spirit of Christ working in us that we'd carry and help share the burdens of others. But remember, this is not something that only strong people do. In fact, this is not something that strong people do. This is something that we as, as Christians who are weak, we do as we trust and depend upon the strength of the Spirit who is in us. So if you're sitting here and you're going, there's just no way I could help someone else. No, we can't. It's not about your strength. It's not about my strength. It's not about your sufficiency. It's about the strength of God who is in you and his sufficiency in us trusting in him. God, I have no idea how to help this person in this, whatever, whatever burden it is, but I'm going to trust that your spirit's going to help me and I'm just going to love them. And we go forth in his strength, not our strength. And I want to encourage you, parents especially, um, this is a great way to disciple our children. You want to, help guard against the fact that many children, when they get to 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, they leave the church. Primarily, I think that happens because they have not seen authentic faith at home. I think that's one of the primary reasons. But listen, we have the opportunity to show our children the love of Christ every day as we help share the burdens of others. One of the best things you can do is let your house be filled with people who are hurting, that your children see the gospel lived out each and every day because as they see you trusting in the spirit that you are helping others they're seeing the spirit of christ they're seeing christ in you they're getting a picture of the gospel and so i encourage you i mean we're all to do this but i just want to especially encourage parents so that a wonderful way to disciple your children that they see how we live from an early age uh, number two another implication we judge with the heart of restoration. kind of mentioned this earlier with that little Table Talk magazine. Many people today say, look, we don't judge one another. Matthew 7, 1. If non-Christians quote the Bible as a way of defending their lifestyle, it's probably not accurate. It just, it's probably not accurate. Um, because if we take that statement, look, we don't judge one another. We can't be obedient to verse 1. You understand that, right? Like, restore one another's caught in a transgression. That implies we have to go to that person. We see that they're in a sin. We've made a judgment. We're now going to go to them and call them to repentance. If we don't judge, we can't obey chapter 1. What the Bible is against is a, is a wrong form of judging. It's against a judging that has a heart of condemnation. But that's not how we come. We come with a heart of restoration. We're wanting to maximize the people's joy, bring them back to Jesus Christ. That's the type of judging that we do. Not condemnation, but one of restoration. And so be prepared for that. You're going to hear that answer as we engage in people and come into people's lives. They're going to push back at times. But we come to them in love and gentleness and humility. Number three, another implication when we begin to share each other's burdens, we shine brightly. I want you to just imagine. Imagine a group of people who love each other so much that they only want the best for each other. And when they see someone carrying a heavy burden or struggling, they all quickly run to that person in order to help them. Wouldn't that be an amazing community? That's the church. That's who we are. That's how we've been called to live. This is what it is to be a believer. And when we live this way, we shine brilliantly in the world, not showing off who we are, but who the Spirit is inside of us. 
Let me read a verse from John 17. In John 17, Jesus is going to give his prayer, his last prayer, before he's arrested and then soon to be crucified. And so this is a long, lengthy prayer. It's an amazing passage. This is what verse 23 says. He says, I in them and you in me. So he's saying, he's talking to God. He's saying, I am in the disciples. There's oneness there. Just as Father, you are in me. So he's talking about the oneness between God himself and the church. And then he says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them as you loved me. So he's saying, let them be one as we are one so that the world will see that you have sent me and loved them. The oneness of the church, when we come together and share one another's burdens, we're giving the, we're giving the world the picture of the gospel right there. We're showing them the love of God at that moment. We're showing them how the Father loves so much that He sends His Son to come take our burdens. That's what we're showing. That's what happens. So when we share people's burdens, when we love this way, this is not trivial. This is not, you know, does it really matter? Does it not? It is a powerful testimony, not only to the church, but from the church to the world about the love of God. In Matthew, Jesus says something similar. Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how do we shine? By loving others. What does that look like? We, te- we come alongside them, we take their burdens, we carry them with them, and when we do that, our light shines before others, they see the good works, and their eyes are then directed to God that He is the one glorified. This is how we live as believers. As we love others and carry burdens, and carry burdens, we are shining brightly. This is my prayer for us as Timberline. This is what I pray for on a regular basis. If we're going to have an impact in Thurston County, if we're going to grow here as a body of believers, if we're going to impact our neighborhoods, if we're going to impact our workplaces, it will not be just simply as we read and read the Bible and attend here, but it says we then go live out the word with the Spirit of God in us, loving others as Christ has loved us so that they would see a picture of the world. And when we do that, the world becomes turned upside down. That's what happens. That's what we read in the book of Acts. That's what happens when the Spirit is released through the church, through acts of love. And so that's my prayer, is that we together, we would love one another. Love one another in what the world would call a radical way, but what we call is the normal Christian life, the spirit life, the kingdom life. Listen, PhDs aren't going to change the world, but people with the Spirit will. That's what it comes down to is we have been given the Spirit that we would love in a radical new way. And this is what the world needs to see, because as they see this, their eyes are directed to the Father who has sent the Son that we could be saved. Two more implications, and then we'll move on. Um, this is one reason why we need church membership. And you're like, whoa, how do we get to church membership? Um, don't worry, we'll, we'll explain it. Paul's talking about how we love those in the church. Primarily, look at chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, we're talking about restoring a believer right here. Unbelievers are always caught in transgression, right? I mean, they have not received Christ yet. And so we're talking about a believer. We're talking about sharing the burdens of one another 
primarily looking at the church. Later in verse 10, he talks about, yes, we love everyone. We love unbelievers as well. But even in verse 10, he says, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. So the idea is we love everyone, but especially our love for one another is what, is, is what shines brightly in this world. So if we're to love one another in a radical way and we share one another's burdens, who is one another? Who are we committed to? See, church membership is an affirmation of one's faith in Christ. It's saying, based upon your testimony and, and what you've told us and what we see, we believe you are uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. So it's an affirming and it's a commitment of the believer to the body that we are both going to work together for one another's good. The believer commits to the church that he would help build the church. The church commits to coming alongside the believer that they would continue to encourage and build them up. Now, just to be clear, if you're not a member of Timberline, you can still be a believer. Not saying you're not a believer if, or if you're not a member, but that's what membership does in churches. It helps us know who is saved, who we're committed to. Um, and then to go a step beyond that, the next implication would be the need for small groups. And this is something we've been talking about more and more, um, and we're going to talk more as we go into August about this. Uh, but if we only see each other on Sundays, then we're only going to know a little bit about each other. Because honestly, um, we want to say we're all going to have deep, intense conversations here. But really, we're probably going to plant seeds and we're going to have bigger conversations elsewhere. Probably not going to have when there's 50 other people walking around those deep conversations. When you're at the coffee line back there, having coffee, discussing the deep sins of your life as other people are just walking by. I mean, if you can do that, that's awesome. Um, I don't do that, um, but I, I do that, and I want to do that with a group of people who are committed to one another, and we're committed to building each other up, to the encouragement of each other, to the study of God's word, the fact that we're encouraging one another to engage and evangelize, and we're committed to restoring one another when we fall into sin. And so that's what we are desiring to see more and more here at at Timberline, and uh, so one thing we're going to start calling them, and so if you're at our uh, TBC 101 class, we, we started using this the other day. Um, we want to call them table groups, just because everyone says small groups. So we just want to slightly distinguish, but we mean small groups. If you say small groups instead of table groups, that's okay. But the reason we just want to start using the word table is because um, we have important conversations around tables, don't we? We had people over at our house last night. Guess what? We sat around a table. If you come over to my house, we'll probably sit around a coffee table, a dinner table, or the outside patio table. If we meet somewhere, it could likely be at a coffee shop where there's a table in between us. Now, you don't have to be a, have a table to be a Christian. Totally okay. We're not putting some weird requirements. It doesn't have to be round. It can be square. It can be triangle. You know, that'd be kind of cool. More Trinitarian that way. Um, doesn't matter what your table looks like. doesn't even matter if you have a table. The idea is important conversations happen around on tables. So that's just what we're trying to communicate at all. So if you call it table groups, we won't, or if you call it small groups, we won't send the table group police to you um, or buy you a table. We just want you to know that's what we want to start using because important conversations happen around tables. And we want to make sure that we all are coming together with a group of people that we're committed to doing life with that we can carry out the commands like this. Okay, so verse 3, we begin to move into a warning. Now here's the warning. We have a flesh that wants to destroy relationships. So before we get to verse 3, let's go back to verse 26, because that's where he starts with the warning, 
And then he comes back later and he gives us just different words, but the same warning. In verse 26, Paul says, let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So to be conceited, this is what Pastor Tim Keller said, and I like his definition. It says, conceit is a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor and glory, leading to a need to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. So it's the idea of, I don't... I want everyone to know how important that I am. I want to prove myself to my, I want to prove my worth to myself and to others. And so conceit can be proved or can be revealed in two ways. We either provoke one another, which means I think I'm better than you, therefore I challenge you. I'm very argumentative and I will make sure I let you know where you differ and where you are wrong in your life. This is to have a very high view of yourself. You have a superior position. Or it can be that I envy you. Now, this is a low position. This is where I am so discontent because I see what you have and I don't have any of that. And when you are happy and with the things that you have, all I do is envy. All I can think of is what I don't have and what I should have. And so I envy you. And so we either can have a high position or a low position. Both are forms of conceit. And conceit destroys relationships. It's like pouring battery acid over a rose bush. It's going to wrinkle it up and die and kill it and eat it. So in chapter 5, 26, Paul warns us about conceit. Now, now go to chapter 6, verse 3. Look at, look at his wording. For, if, for, in any, for anyone that thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. Do you see how he's picking right back up on the whole idea of conceit? Wanting to prove yourself. In fact, he's kind of taking the higher form, the superior form, the provoking one another. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, if you think you're something, if you you think you're great, if you think you're more, that's what he's communicating here. So Paul is warning us about having a high view of self. Muhammad Ali, one time he gets on a plane, stewardess goes through her talk, he says, we need to put seatbelts on. He says, Superman doesn't need seatbelts. To which she replies, Superman doesn't need airplanes either. Buckle up. <laughs> and so, like, we all have high views of ourselves at times. We see it in the world a lot. And as Christians, we're not immune to this. Like, we can have a very high view of ourselves. And when that happens, all of our relationships are threatened. Listen, when we have a high view of ourselves, at least three things can occur. At least. Number one, I won't help you because I'm too good to help you. I distance myself. I, I'm not associated with you. I'm too good for that. I won't help you because I think you deserve what you get. Like I told you to stop doing it, and you kept doing it. Too bad for you. Now I'm just going to watch you suffer, and I'll probably gossip and slander about you also and let people know I told him, but he didn't listen to me. So the idea, again, remember, we're not directing people to Jesus. It's they didn't listen to me, and therefore now you can just live in the bed that you made or whatever that. You made your bed, lie in it, something like that. Or I will help you. It's not out of love. I will treat you like a project so that I can fix you. My ultimate goal is not that you'd become more like Jesus, but that you'd become more like me. I want you to know how right I am. I want to make a small clone of myself. And if you prove to be difficult, if you do not fall in line, then I will leave you because you are not worth my time. Let's just be clear. This is a form of legalism. 
This is what Paul's been battling all throughout the letter. Legalism is where I love myself and I use other people to make much of me. And if you don't benefit me, I don't need you. That's why there's so many divorces today. We're, we're not committed to each other. We're committed to myself. And as long as you benefit me, we're good. But the moment you don't, we're okay with parting ways. This is why, have you ever, you know when you've been around a conceited person because it hurts. It's kind of like rubbing your face against a cactus. It's never pleasant. You ever have those kind of experiences with people? You've been with that person and they leave and you're like, I'm just glad they left. Like, this is Job's friends. If you go to the book of Job, Job has three friends. They come to him. They offer him great advice on what a wicked, terrible person he is and how they're not like him or like themselves. That's basically the first 31, 31, 32 chapters of the book of Job where they come and they just ridicule him. Legalistic people, it just hurts because there's no gentleness in them. Do you know people like that? Do you struggle with that? Everyone's like, what, do I? I struggle with this. This This is where I would struggle. I have, a, I have a personality that likes to go this way. Do you struggle with looking down on others at times? Do you feel like you are better? Do you feel, do you find yourself easily seeing the sin of other people? Is that just easy for you to point out all the sins of the people around you? Do you feel like more people should just be like you? If the world was full of people like me, we'd be okay. You ever realize how scary that would be? <laughs> I think I would be very scary if there was more people like me. Um, so what's the solution? We go to verse 4. Examine ourselves. Paul says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor. So to test our work is to examine ourselves. Paul used different words here, but in 524, he's saying the same thing. In 524, he says, we need to daily crucify the flesh, and its passions and desires. And so now he's saying that what we need to do is examine ourselves. Is there any fleshly passions or desires that are in us that are opposing the Spirit? And those are what we are to get rid of. And so our examining ourselves is the same thing as crucifying ourselves in chapter 5. And so how do we do this? Number one, we do it by prayerfully spending time in the Bible each day. Prayerfully, not just reading the Bible, closing it, marking off the box, hey, I did it, but prayerfully saying, God, change me. Make me more like you. And also asking the prayer, as I read this, is there sin in my life? If so, please reveal it that I might repent. We want to be humble people that regularly are asking to be transformed by Christ. The word, um, you ever go into uh, an airport in the metal detector? So much fun, we all love those things, and now you have to like stand and, it sees all of you. <laughs> so weird. But um, the whole idea is that, like a metal detector, it shows where the metal is. You know, that forgotten penny you had in your wallet, and don't worry, they'll let you know. Um, well, that's what the word, as we hold the word of God up, it shows us where is their sin. Where are their areas that need to be transformed? And the good news is, the Spirit is always working in us that we become more like Jesus. This is what we're to do on a daily basis. And listen, if we're going to help others, this is most important. In order to love others, we must spend time in the word being changed by the word. Your personal holiness is what we need most. It's what your family needs most. It's what the church needs most. It's what your workplace needs most. It's what your neighbor needs most. 
Your personal growth in Jesus Christ, becoming more like him, is far more important than other things. Because as you do that, you're able to share the burdens of others. You're able to love others like Jesus Christ. We're not going to be able to love people like Jesus if we're not being transformed into Jesus. And we know that the faith and spirit always work together with the word for the transformation of ourself. And so daily prayerful time in the word is a means of growing in holiness, devotion to God, that then we would, then we would be able to come alongside others share the burdens, and love them as Christ has called us to love. Second, we do this by committing to a group of believers, table groups. I cannot know everyone within the church, but I can know 8, 10, or 15 people, and we can spend time regularly praying for one another, encouraging one another. Let me ask you, do you have people who are committed to your growth in Christ? Do you have people in your life that are committed to your growth? Do you have people that are committed to helping root out the sin in your life? Now, you might just be like, I don't know if I want fault finders in my life. That doesn't sound like fun. Hey, let's have a time we all get together. We'll say what's screwed up with each other. And then we'll pray for each other. And That sounds like a great time, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. The idea is, though, remember, we don't come to each other for condemnation but restoration. It's all about coming to be more like Jesus. And we need the word of God. But also, I need to realize you have the spirit of God in you that you can speak things that you see in my life. Because honestly, we're, we're blind so much to ourself at times, right? I'm blind to what I'm doing. I see some things, but I need you to see me clearly. So what does Paul mean then that we should boast in ourselves rather than others? When I'm conceited, I'm looking down on others, and I boast because I'm better than them. So when he talks about in verse uh, 4, let each one test his own work, then his reason to boast will be in himself, not in his neighbor. I boast in my neighbor when I see him, I see how much better I am. That's how I boast in my neighbor. I boast in myself when I'm daily examining myself and seeing how God is changing me and making me more like himself. So this isn't a prideful boast, like look at me. It's a boast that we see later. If you go down into verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, the only thing we boast in is Jesus. The way I do that is daily examination that I would not boast in others, but I would boast in what Jesus is doing in me and then in verse 5 paul says each will have to bear his own load so what is paul saying here is he contradicting verse 2 we share burdens here no you carry your own load is paul going schizo on us saying one thing but saying another thing that contradicts no he's he's not just so you know no he's not um the word burden in verse 2 refers to a heavy burden we've already talked about that it could be a sin um, could be an emotional one, could be a physical one with another relationship or something like that. But the word load is more like a backpack. It's lighter, it's what I carry. So this is what I think Paul is getting at here. I think load refers to the individual Christian responsibility to love others. As a Christian, I've been given the Spirit that I've walked by the Spirit and love others and help share their burdens. That's my load. That's what I'm called to do. That's what I am responsible for doing is, is walking by the Spirit and loving people as, I call, as I've been called to do. Um, which means if I see another believer neglecting to carry their load, love others, that doesn't give me license. Well, he's not helping, so I don't need to help others. No, no. We're all responsible for our own load. We'll all stand before Christ and, stand, and give judgment for our own works. So we come 
And we're responsible for how we live. We want to help others, but we're responsible to make sure we are living in a way that loves others. Listen, as Christians, we are God's instruments to help others become more like Jesus. This is what we've been saved to do. This is what we do in this life. We've been given the spirit that we love one another. One of the ways we do that is by sharing and carrying burdens. This is the task of every Christian because every Christian has the spirit. And as we bear each other's burdens, we give the world a picture of the gospel. We show them what kingdom life looks like. Because you know what life looks like in the kingdom, right? It's love. We love one another. You know what we're going to do in all of eternity when Christ comes back and makes the new heavens and new earth? We're going to love one another. We won't have to share burdens at that moment because there won't be any more burdens, but we will just perfectly experience love with one another. And now, even now, we've been given the spirit that we'd give a, the, the world a picture of that now, what it looks like to love. And as we help carry burdens, we're working for other people's joy. Know that. You're working for their joy. We're helping them experience the grace of Christ. Be remembered, be reminded of the joy of God. And guess what? When we help them, we're being obedient to God, which means we are using our faith through the Spirit. And when we do that, we're also growing in our love and joy also. As we help others, we also are maximizing our joy in Christ. So as we seek to be obedient by faith through the Spirit, God is growing us to become more like Jesus, that we would more experience his grace, that we'd more experience his joy. So as we work, as we help restore others, it's so that they would experience the joy of Christ. And as we do that, we also will experience the joy of Christ. We don't experience the joy of Christ living insulated lives. It's living out the word of God in community with others. And this is my prayer. This is my prayer for us as Timberline. I pray that we continue to grow in this love. This faith that we have here we continue to grow in the gospel that we would be reminded that we have the spirit of God in us, that we can love one another. I pray that we are a church that when there is a need that goes out, that we all run to meet it. We don't think, I'm sure someone else has that one. When there's a need, we pray. We meet it physically, whatever it, calls, whatever it is. And as we do that, we begin shining brightly so that the world, our neighbors, our co-workers, all around us will begin to see the love of the gospel. Because that's the whole goal, is that more and more people would see Jesus, they'd love Jesus, they live like Jesus, and thus we're making disciples who makes disciples. Um, let's pray as the team then comes forward and leads us as we continue to worship God today. Father, you're a good God, and we thank you for your goodness we thank you on how you sent your son to enter into this world. We thank you that you held nothing back, but you gave your son to die on a cross. And then by belief in your son, you give us your spirit. That, that you would literally dwell within us, transforming us and making us more like you. God, help us to know that this is not something for only a few Christians. This is not something only for those who think they're strong, but it is for all Christians, for we are all strong in the spirit. And so Lord, help us to do this knowing that as we live out the gospel, we are showing other people the love of the gospel, that they would come to know you more and more. Lord, help us to be a church that shines brightly. Help us to be a church that loves one another. And when we gather like this, these meetings are full of love. When we have table groups, they're full of love. When we're out in this world, we demonstrate this love and we shine brightly. God, fill us with your spirit today. May we know that this is why 
we've been called to live, to live for you, to show people the love that you have given us. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.